Good morning, Vision Christian Fellowship. I'm happy to be with you today. I would like to um, lead you or share with you or study, meditate with you uh, on a series that we spoke a little bit about last week uh, from Galatians. And uh, one of the things that have been on my mind uh, for the past few weeks is, is to do with the quality of our Christian life. What is the nature of the Christian life? And um, I have been meditating upon the fact that there are some Christians who are Christians, who call themselves Christians, but something is missing in their life. It's almost as if the dynamic of the life of Christ, the living life of Christ, seems to be missing or it seems to be muted. And, uh, and then there you see these other Christians in which it's almost an infinite qualitative difference between the quality of the Christ life in them and others who don't seem to experience the reality of God in their lives. And uh, I've been meditating about, upon this, and uh, as I was asking God about this, because I am concerned that our church become a church uh, that is able to not only thrive under pressure and under testing, but be able to shine forth and authenticate the real stuff, the real deal in us, uh, during times of uh, persecution or pressure or, uh, or difficult times of darkness. And so this has been something that's been on my mind and I would like to sort of uh, uh, share with you a meditation every Sunday on this for the next uh, three Sundays. Uh, let's pray though and ask God to really speak to us, you know, because unless He speaks to us, we can talk all we want, we can study all that we want and we can uh, search all we want, but uh, that's just ourselves doing it. We need to be spoken to by God. So let's go and seek the Lord right now. Lord, we welcome you. We welcome the presence of the Holy Spirit. We recognize that unless we are spoken to, all the knowledge that we have is quite beside the point. We need a word from you. We need you to address us. And so we come before you recognizing our utter helplessness the utter bankruptcy of all our efforts, no matter how noble they are. And we ask you, Lord, that you will speak one word from you can cause whole worlds of difference, whole worlds of redemption and change and transformation. We welcome you, Lord. And we ask you that you open up your own word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at Galatians chapter 1. We will look at Galatians chapter 1 and and uh, a little bit of Galatians chapter 2 as well. Okay, we are not going to do an exhaustive study or comprehensive study of Galatians, but we will look at some things that uh, we shall pick out, uh, which we uh, may sense that the Holy Spirit is leading us to. Reading from verse 1. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Paul, an apostle, not from man, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, um, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so, so, so soon from him who called you, and there's this, this phrase that's going to keep on repeating, and the phrase is a different gospel. 
you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul's very, very concerned about the gospel, right? The gospel, the content of the gospel, the purity of the gospel. Yeah. But even if we or an angel of heaven or from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. He's very bold about that. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel, to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade man or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. But when it pleased God, who separated from me, me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. Uh, afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. And they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us, persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. This is a, a, a chapter that I never fail to enjoy reading. Uh, not least of all because of the fact of Paul's saltiness when he's uh, fighting for the gospel, it seems like the gospel is completely crucial to Paul. And I wonder whether sometimes the weakness of our faith or the weakness of our Christian life is because of the fact that there's a way in which our gospel may be in some ways uh, watered down or compromised or have elements of it that are not really radically separated from, from God, radically from heaven, from God. Notice how Paul is very at pains to describe how he was not influenced by any external human uh, elements, but he would, it came, the gospel came to him as a revelation of Christ. He's quite at pains to actually describe the, 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 the separateness of it, the otherness of this gospel, that it came from heaven, and it didn't come from earth. It, 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 uh, it did not even come from his consultation with the apostles, actually. Uh, it came from God. And I wonder whether there's, there's, there's something in this that uh, we need to really look at, the gospel, the nature of the gospel. And I think we'll take a little stab at it uh, this morning and, uh, and uh, see where God leads us with this. Yes, I was talking about this, in what seems to be sometimes an infinite qualitative difference between different kinds of Christians. Um, it seems as if some Christians are constantly 
struggling with whether God was re- is real in their life. It seems as if that some, for some of them, the promises of God or the, the promises of Christ's life, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, are, seem to be not that real in their lives. And uh, it's almost as if their lives, their Christian lives, are, are, are lived out in their minds. In their, in their minds. And, um, and what Paul speaks about is a different gospel or a gospel that has been somehow distorted um, and somehow uh, uh, emptied of, vacated of its power. Yeah? Vacated of its power. And, uh, I, and, and I was just thinking about this. And uh, thinking about people who experience the reality of God. Um, I was just reading about Mary Peckham. She was uh, aged about 16 or so uh, during the revival in the Hebrides between uh, 1949 and 1953. She was a very young girl at that time. And when she was touched by God, God used her even as a young girl. She recently passed away, well, relatively recently, in, um, in um, uh, 2010. But throughout the, her whole life, even as a much older lady, she was being used by God in revivals everywhere she went. And I like to listen to the, the, the stories and just the way the stories are are conveyed even in their speaking. So I've, I've, I've listened to many of her talks on YouTube um, when she was in her 60s. And, uh, and there's something about Mary Peckham and many others who have experienced firsthand God. And there's a certain way in which when they describe their experience of the revival firsthand, their eyes well up. Their heart is warm. And you can't fake it. They don't describe it as something that is an intellectual uh, idea or something that was external to them, but they were participating in it. It's almost as if when you listen to Mary Peckham and so many others who are part of the who, who experienced the revival or revivals firsthand, their speech is... is is charged with a certain warmth, a certain love, a certain reality. It's almost as if when they speak about it, that whole reality comes back, flooding into their minds uh, as they share about this. And, and they've touched, every time they remember it, they touch a place in their lives or their hearts that has been touched by God. Now this is really important because it's a first-hand experience of God. They're not talking about an idea or something that they've read or they've researched. They are talking about something that happened to them. And now Paul says, I am an apostle, not from man, not of man, but from God. And he's speaking about, the, about it as someone who has experienced God firsthand. Firsthand. And he can always come back to that place. He can always come back to that place where God met him, whether it was on the road to Damascus or in many of his encounters with God. He's speaking about something that actually happened to him rather than something that he researched or that he googled uh, uh, about. It's really interesting because apostles at that time in the, in the history of the church, yeah, at that time, 
had to be people who had encountered the Lord Jesus personally and directly themselves. Yeah? Now, Paul was not one of those. He had not, never met Jesus in the flesh. But he had an encounter with God. He had an encounter with Jesus and he was a sent one. And he was one who was sent because he had an, an encounter with God. He, can, he could speak of a time in which God met him and sent him. And I think that's, that's true to Galatians chapter 1 when he talks about the fact that he's not of man or, or from man, but from God. He's talking as an apostle. And there's a difference between the apostles and the historians. So, for example, Josephus never met Jesus. Never met Jesus. He speaks as a historian. And so we read his accounts and we, are, we understand that his, his accounts are the accounts of a historian. But an apostle was different. An apostle had met him. First uh, John speaks of the fact that we touched him, we, 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 we encountered him, our hands beheld him, our eyes saw him. Yeah? John chapter 1, uh, 1 John chapter 1. There is something of a personal encounter with God that caused them to speak about that which was spoken to them, which was given to them. And may I say to you that there is an infinite difference between you and I researching or googling the Christian faith and having the Christian faith, like a secret, being disclosed to us personally by Jesus Christ. There's a huge difference between someone who has googled the Christian faith or who has read books about it and someone to whom a secret has been told by the very one himself. And I wonder whether, at the, right at the very base of our Christian faith, this is the great divide. The great divide has to do with the fact that there are some Christians whose life is lived in the mind. It's, it's in, 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 the, in the form of indirect and secondary data as opposed to having a secret being spoken to them, being told to them by the very one himself who carries that secret, which is Jesus Christ himself. And I wonder whether that is the difference between Mary Peckham and all the rest. And that is that Mary Peckham experienced the revival and as she actually describes this, the, the revival, you cannot fake it. The warmth and the, 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 the tears that rise up upon her, her eyes and flow out, that is, comes from not a construct that came from, from, from her mind, from her research, but because of the fact that she is brought back to that real place that actually happened. If I may be permitted to speak personally, I find often that there is in me a place that when I'm praying or when I'm describing or I'm remembering with some um, depth, there's a place in me that I encounter, a place in which it almost feels like a pool of tears a pool of love that whenever I sometimes sing a song or sing a hymn or just think about the Lord, I can't help it. I sometimes, un, you know, uh, uh, accidentally almost, find that when I find myself there, I become emotionally just welled up with tears. 
I sometimes find that um, we are uh, singing a song with the, with the family, with the children, and then suddenly my, my voice breaks when we are singing a, just a little chorus, something that seems quite innocuous, and my kids are going, what? What is, what is he doing? And it sometimes happens quite often um, when we are having dinner together or just talking. I don't know how it happens. Sometimes I'm singing a song and uh, I can't carry on singing it because there is this place that I'm brought back to in which the Lord met me and completely overwhelmed me with what he did, with his love as well. I, I feel that I'm constantly brought back to such places. Just recently, a colleague of mine um, who was in full-time ministry with me in Malaysia uh, passed away. She's about my age. And, uh, and uh, when I think about her, it brings back memories of the, the time in which after I met God, the Lord began to do just amazing things in my life. Things that are... I mean, if I will tell it to you, they would be hard, it would be hard for you to even believe. I remember when the, uh, after I, I, I was filled with the Holy Spirit and for the first time I knew that I was saved. I, I knew that I, was, I belonged to Christ for the first time. In my heart, I knew it. Before, I had not, before that, I, I had always doubts about whether I was ever going to heaven, whether God even were, cared about me as well. But there's a certain point in which uh, after I had, I had met him, I could not help the Christian life that, hap- that happened to me. It's almost as if I didn't try to intentionally have a Christian life. I just found that the Christian life happened to me, you know. And I found that um, before I even went full, full-time ministry, <coughs> um, God was using me to uh, plant a church, to, to start a campus ministry. We had a revival in our, in our, uh, in our campus. About 100 people came to the Lord. And I saw God healing people, healing people and saving people. Some of the worst, the ones with the worst reputations. I remember when God transformed my family and I, uh, my parents were so changed that our house began to be a house that, in which all kinds of people would come. My own room, which is a very small room, very small room, was filled with, with guys who were drug addicts. I remember one time we had uh, four or five drug addicts sleeping in the same bed as me and, and people would fall off the bed as well. There would be times in which my classmates would come to the house and they would just find that in our house, which was quite a big house, my parents would be constantly uncle and auntie to them. And, um, and uh, they would uh, experience the, the, the growth and discipling in my, in, my, in my house. I remember that our house was filled with people all the time because of that. I can tell you about experiences that I didn't, we did not envisage. We didn't try to create, happen. We didn't try to strategize for or try to organize or anything. But it just happened. It's almost as if what Paul is speaking about in terms of the gospel, even its authenticity, it just does these things willy-nilly. It just does these things willy-nilly. And I, I, wanna, I want us to be able to, to examine that without any sense of self-doubt but just to examine that, because it is possible that we actually are skirting, some of us may be skirting around the vicinity of the gospel, but not fully experiencing it firsthand. 
I want to talk about this first-hand experience because there's a way in which this first-handedness um, of our experience of Jesus Christ transforms us, transforms us to the extent that we can expect that more can happen in our lives. But more because of the fact that we've encountered the Lord Jesus and our hearts have been changed. Uh, um, John, uh, John and Charles Wesley talked about, talked about this in one of, the, in, in one of their, their hymns. And he, says, and, and, and he says, Jesus is all the world to me and all my heart is love. Jesus is all the world to me and all my heart is love. I don't necessarily hear that much nowadays in contemporary Christianity. We think of Christianity in terms of things that we must do, things that we our duty, things that are formal issues that we need to address. But I don't hear the overflowing reality of Christ's love in our speech today. And it troubles me a little. It troubles me a little it troubled me a little that when I first came to America and we had worship times, that none of the songs that we sang spoke about an overflowing love that we experience in Jesus. Very few people could talk about the love they have for God. It was very interesting because of that. And I wondered whether it's possible that They've not actually met him besides something that was experienced in the mind. So I want to talk about this uh, um, as we look into this. Um, I remember when, when before I was a Christian, I had, been grown, I had grown up in, in the church with learning hymns and all that, and none of them felt real to me. None of them could, was anything that I could identify Jesus is all the world to me, and all my heart is love. I could not identify with that. I just thought about it as just this hyperbole in which some Christians who never experienced it just talk the talk. It's an, and it's, it's a dirty secret that all of us have, that we talk it up, but we don't really experience it. Then when God filled me with the Holy Spirit, all those hymns came back to me. I could not, I could not speak about those hymns or sing those things without tearing up and all that. Now, I don't mean to say that if you're not experiencing this emotionally charged experience, then you're not, not, not from God, or not, not experiencing God. What I'm saying is this, there is more that perhaps this indicates for us. Yeah? Galatians chapter 1. Paul says there is such a thing as the infection of a different gospel that can cause us to become bound up. Look at this. Uh, have a look at this in verse 6. I marvel that you're soon, so soon turning away from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be a curse. Verse 9. As we have said before, so now say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be a curse. Or do I now persuade men, or do I please men? Uh, verse 11, I have made known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but came through the revelation of Christ. 
And then he gets into the gospel. And I, we've spoken about this last week, but I'd like to go, go into it more deeply, okay? Verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son, not to me, because some of your, 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 your translations like ESV and, uh, and, uh, and NRSV or RSV would say to reveal his son to me, but then if you look at the margin, it will say literally, or Greek, or GK, in me. The thing about these, these translators is that it just doesn't make sense to them that, that um, Paul is speaking about revealing his son in me rather than to me. It seems more, uh, more logical or much more in the common experience of human, human, pe- human beings that Christ would be revealed to me rather than in me. But it's unmistakable. The original speaks about revealing the Son in me. What Paul is saying is this, the, the life of Christ is revealed in me. That means he is in me and he begins to be revealed outwardly from me. So much so that there is the presence of one who is objectively real, who is substantial, who, is, who has taken over the scene, so that he reveals himself, Christ reveals himself in me. Not Christ reveals as himself to me as one who is external to me, but Christ is revealed from me, from the inside of me. And I want to put it to you that actually, if you look at the rest of Galatians, we will be going into that. This theme of Christ revealed in me is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is not that Christ was revealed to me from, from, from externals, but, but Christ was revealed in me so much so that his life is manifest in me. The heart of the gospel is not the fact that God comes to us and tells us how we should live ethically. It is not that God tells us that we're going to go to heaven, essentially. It is not the gospel. The gospel is not such that, that it can be summed up in the fact that God has given to us a whole new way of living, more radical than the, 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 the way of the world, a new ethical system, or a new way of justice, or a new way of, 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 of well-being. It is the fact that that one has come into me has shared his life to me, to, with me, and has become my life, one Jesus Christ. It is that the life of a Christian is no longer the life that I live. It is no longer, I'm no longer in the picture. But Christ is now living his life in me. Therefore, as we see in Galatians chapter 2, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I that's living, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He experienced the love of God. But more important than that, that, that life of God is now manifest in me. There is someone in me, there is someone who is my life. And I've exchanged that old life, the life of the dead body, the crucified person, the body of sin. And I have done away with him. So much so that I have died to that and I've become a new one. The life of the gospel is not the fact that I can now, having appropriated the Christian principles and the, the uh, Christian message, can now live my life in the old man or in the flesh. And what was happening is that the Galatians were being afflicted by the Judaizer, Judaizer, Judaizers 
or Judaizers, who are coming and saying, no, what you need to do is to continue to live according to this set of rules that you've had in, our, in the Hebrew tradition, so that that will cause you to be righteous, and you need to depend upon these things, and you need to be circumcised, and you still have to live according to the law. What Paul was saying is this, there is something much more radical than the adoption of a new cultural code, or a new ethical code, or a new religious code. There is something more radical that is happening, and this is the, the, this is the offense of the gospel, okay? The offense of the gospel has to do with the fact that the gospel cannot be lived. The Christian life cannot be lived. It cannot be done. You cannot, to core, just receive that, the, 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 the teaching of Christ and then apply it. You can't. The, 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 the current way in which Christianity is taught is taught minus the new covenant, the, the teaching of the New Testament. That is that we died. And if we did not die, then the old body of sin is trying to live the Christian life. The assumption is that we can live the Christian life just because the Christian life has been preached or it has been taught or it has been discipled into you or that it has been shared to you or it has been prayed into you. No, the Christian life doesn't happen that way. The Christian life cannot be lived in the flesh. It cannot be lived in the old person, the, the person who has been diseased. Even though the old man, or the old, what, what Paul calls the old man, has been made in the image of God, sin has marred it. So much so that whenever we in the flesh try to live the Christian life or appropriate the teachings of Christ upon us, we can only do it in a distorted way, in an unhealthy way, in a toxic way, because everything that we touch is marred by sin. We cannot help sinning even in the way in which we try to live pure lives, or even if we pray, in the flesh. The, 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 the gospel of error that the Galatians was, were preaching was this, that somehow in the flesh, the Christian life had to be lived with all these rules and regulations. What Paul was saying is this, no, it's not even going to work. It's not even going to work if, if you do all that. Circumcision or non-circumcision, it's not even a thing as far as Christ is concerned. The Christian life lies not in the fact of our efforts, lies not in the fact of our own good intentions, it lies in the fact that Christ did away with us. He did away with our freedom. That's why you cannot appropriate the freedom of Christ the way in which it's done in America, whether politically or, or culturally. No, freedom is not an innate thing that comes, comes to, to you. It is not, it's not there. It does not exist for us just because of the fact that we are made in the image of God. Freedom is not. We are bound. The very, the, the very identity of ourselves is that of slaves. We've been marred. Therefore, freedom cannot be something that's an absolute thing. It has to be given by Christ. But what Christ has done is this. He has set us free by doing away with the old life. Therefore, you cannot live the Christian life with the old man trying to be free. It's impossible. I hope I haven't offended you. The Christian life is not some Americanized form of Christianity that is filled with freedom. There is a freedom, but the freedom comes from Christ. There's a, there's a, there's a freedom that comes from Christ. But for that to happen, it comes only in the, in the form of Christ. If you try to apply that freedom into your flesh, 
into, into, into what, we, what the Bible calls the body of sin that has been sin-wracked, that has been tainted by sin, it will not work. It will not work. And that is why a lot of times our appropriations of Christian doctrine, Christian promises and all that, don't happen. Why? Because of the fact that we try to live our life of God, the life, our Christian life, in the flesh. In the flesh. By the flesh, sorry. By the flesh. And so, may I suggest to you that actually, um, we have to start with the fact that the law and all these uh, great Christian principles are not applicable. They're not applicable as long as we are in the flesh. My, my guess is this, from, from being here in, in, uh, in the United States for a, for a while, is that many Christians are living the Christian life as best as they can in the flesh. And what I said last week is that the flesh, unfortunately, profits nothing. And that is why many people find that prayer doesn't seem to be powerful. The gifts of the Spirit seem to be paltry at best. Not very impressive. Not very impressive at all. The, 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 the things, the mighty things of God, are, which are on a whole different dimension, can sometimes be reduced to just things and impressions in the mind. I don't mean that God doesn't speak to us that way. But when that's all there is to it, then you have to wonder what is happening with this gospel. Yeah? What is happening with this gospel? And so may I suggest to you that actually when, God, when Paul is speaking about the fact that Christ, God, separated him from his mother's womb, that is the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel is that God separated us out from all the elements of this world, including your, uh, your gene- genealogy, even your genetics, spiritually, in terms of identity, I don't mean physically, but in terms of identity, we, the starting point of the gospel is a complete separation, a complete death to the old self. What it means is this, we live no longer by the flesh, no longer by our own uh, innate um, um, desires, but, but, but according to one who is now ruler of our life, who is now in us. He separated from my mother's womb and called me according to his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What Paul is saying is this, I can't preach unless Christ reveals himself in me. I can't preach a message that I heard from somewhere else and then pass on to you. I can't do that. The preaching of the gospel has to do with the embodiment or the embodying forth of a reality. So that when I'm preaching... God is speaking and God is doing miracles beyond the words that I speak. What Paul is saying is this, I'm equipped to be an apostle of God because of the fact that what I'm ministering is not what I just heard in my mind and now I process and analyze and uh, become creative about it and now I'm going to share this with you. No, it has to be something that came into me, devastated me and came on the outside and substituted itself from all the meanness of of, of me. And so what Paul is saying is this, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, there was a radical separating out of my own self to Him. I belong to Him and no one else. I belong to no ethical system. 
I know I belong to no political system. I belong to no um, 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 educational system. I don't even belong to my parents. I don't even belong to my upbringing. I do not belong to my race. I do not belong to my culture. I do not belong to my country. I belong to God. There is a certain way in which even though we belong in this world and have responsibilities to these things, ontologically, in terms of our very, very being, the core of our being, we have to, understand, we have to get this right, that we are separated unto God. And there may come times in which we have to displease these obligations that we have. And there may be many times in which that separation unto God will be somewhat, something that is done in the face of our obligations to our parents, our family, our friends, the culture, and the, 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 the identifications of our identity, race, culture, gender, all these kind of things. There are going to be times in which you have to know within yourself, deep within yourself, that you are not from this world, not of this world, not of man, but of God. And so much so that there, are, there, there may be times in which you may find yourself at variance with it even though you have obligations to this, even though you have to relate in the world, but still not be of the world. That is really important because when Paul was beginning to beginning his gospel, the gospel he was saying the gospel begins with a radical um, um, separation, a radical disjuncture with the values of the world, even though the things of the world may coincide with Christ. And so I'd like to introduce a term that I've spoken about a little bit, a bit, uh, um, uh, in the, in past years, um, as Paul speaks about the separation unto him so that we will be of him and not of the world. He uses a term, and the term is the asymptote, the asymptote. Now, the asymptote is something that I, as a non-mathematician, have heard about from a distance, and I would um, offer myself as the most ignorant uh, person to speak about it. I should not even be speaking about it. So because of that, I consulted uh, Zephy and Cindy for a more authoritative understanding of the, of the term asymptote. Asymptote, according to Cindy, is a guiding line that a graph of a function never reaches but gets infinitesimally closer to forever. Get it? Or from Zephy, an asymptote is a value that the output of a function will never reach, but will grow infinitesimally closer to. So I'm going to ask Daniel to put up a picture for all of us to have a look at. And if you look at the picture, there's a, there's a dotted black line. This is, the, this is the asymptote. And there are these two lines in the graph that are in... Are they pink or red or purple or purplish color? Yeah? And you'll find that these two lines, and I'd like you to just picture these two lines if, with respect to, to, the, to the black dotted line, which is the asymptote. These two lines will come very, very close, but they will never have any contact with the black line. And it may be said that these two red lines or pink lines have an asymptotic relationship with the red, with the black line. So this term has been used not only in mathematics, mathematics, but now it's also used in philosophy and 
in, uh, in other uh, branches of knowledge as well. The idea of an asymptotic relationship has to do with the fact that there are two things perhaps that are in, which are in a asymptotic relationship that are very close. They may seem to even overlap in, 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 in terms of their, their content. But they are completely different. There is no contact between them. They are ontologically or they are, they are in being completely of a different form, sort. And so what Paul was saying is, is there, are, as a, there is an asymptotic relationship between the Jewish law and, and, and the life of Christ. There are similarities. There are, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an asymptote and then there's this other function right now that comes close. Comes close, very similar, but it's not of it. And if you are that, that comes close, you may be wondering why your Christian life does not seem to be fruitful, does not seem to experience the reality and the power that Mary Peckham has experienced. You're wondering why is it you're doing everything right, you're having all the right values, but somehow it's asymptotic. I mean, it never comes into contact with the thing of, the, the genuine thing of God, because the genuine thing of God is not values. It is substance. It's actualities. And so sometimes what can happen is this, and this is something that I'm, I'm really praying about for our church and for the church of Jesus Christ here in the US, and that is that there's sometimes in which we live our Christian life with full sincerity, wanting to follow as best as we can the life of Jesus and all that, but we are, we are, we are, we are, we are asymptotic in relationship. We have the values. We try to adopt the values. We try to appropriate the things of Christ. But there is something wrong, missing. The, the thing that's missing is the fact that these values that we have, these ways of living the, the Christian life, are not from a spring of Christ. They are from a spring of our flesh or from values that the world holds in, in common with us. And, and as a result of that, they don't bear much fruit. They don't have the same kind of zing, the kind of life, the, 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 the pulsating life of Christ. They don't have that extra over and above all that we ask for things, that quality in us. And I'm at pains to actually travail for our church until all of us experience that life of Christ in which it is more than what you can even imagine. More than you can imagine. Amen? And so I want to, I want to, I want to see this. And, I, and uh, I'd look, like you to turn with me as, as you keep your finger in, in Galatians or, or maybe not. Uh, just turn with me to John chapter 12. And it's in John chapter 12 that there's a connecting point. There's an impasse that gets broken. And let's have a look at this. John chapter 12. And this is the... This is the... The incident in which Mary pours out the fragrance of the oil upon Jesus' feet. Alright, let's have a look at this. Verse 1. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at table with him. So he's well enough to be able to to kind of relax at the table. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. You see the effect of the oil. It is beyond control. It's beyond any kind of definition. It, it has a life of its own. 
its permeation is on its own terms. Mary could not tell, Jesus could not tell the oil, the fragrance to go here and not there. It took over. It was far greater than the, than the, the sum of its parts, so to speak. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This is said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. I'd like us to look at this. The, 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 there's, there's this contrast between Judas and Mary. In another part, there was another woman, another Mary, uh, who, who actually, in the, in the presence of the Pharisees, did a very similar thing. She broke the alabaster box, and as she broke the alabaster box, out came the ointment, and it filled the, fulfilled the room. Mary had Jesus' approval, so to speak. Her worship was to Jesus, and her reaction and her interaction was to Jesus. On the other hand, there's Judas, and Judas was speaking things that were actually legitimate. They were actually valid, because the Old Testament speaks, and actually the New Testament, and you'll find this in Galatians as well, that the, the apostles told told, told uh, uh, Paul, we approve of everything, but we want you to remember one thing, you must always remember the poor. You must always remember the poor. And Paul says, and I was wont to do that. I want to do that too. So this, the, 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 the taking care of the poor and the, the pouring out of our lives towards the poor is something that will, is not just an Old Testament thing, it's a New Testament thing. It's something that is part of our, our Christian life. But Jesus was saying, but, but, but uh, sorry, John is saying here that there is something about the spirit the nature of Judas Christianity, so to speak, that was infinitely at variance with Mary's. And that is that <coughs> he had a heart of a thief. He had the heart of a thief, whereas Mary was almost in an unrehearsed way pouring out what was real in her life and it had the power to, to, to fragrance up the whole place. Judas could not, did not have a heart to carry the values that he had. He could not be consistent with his values. It's not that the values were bad, the values were, were, were right on with God. But he had an asymptotic relationship with the love and the, and the life of God that issued forth in the works of justice. He had an asymptotic relationship because his heart was of a different kind. There was no contact between all his ethics and the living God himself. And what Jesus was saying to, 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 to Mary was this, and to, and to his disciples is this, the starting point is a breaking of your heart, a breaking of your life, and, and it's a, the starting part is a hot mess, an uncontrolled mess in which you and all the autonomy that you have, all the things that keep your form, the form of your life together, must break. Unless it breaks and it becomes no longer yours but mine, you will not have the fragrance that, that is supernatural that will go to places in the, in the house that you, you, you never envisage. It will not have that kind of permeation that is supernatural. You cannot, you cannot have that. There's a difference between the calculated values of Judas 
and the uncalculated values and the calculated, uncalculated heart of Mary. And what, 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 um, what uh, we see in John chapter 12 is this, that, that, that the starting point of the Christian life that causes us to see the utter difference between a Judas-type values-driven, values-filled religious life and Mary's, which was reality-filled, is so clear. It's so clear. And what Paul is, what, sorry, what Paul is speaking about in terms of its, this life of Christ that gets manifest is, is, is that he is speaking about something that we have absolutely no control over. In fact, it is not over, even of ourselves. In fact, actually, what happens is this, what we see in Mary is, is the, the precious stuff that can come out only when the alabaster box or the box of spike nut is broken. Is broken. In those days, alabaster boxes were boxes of soft uh, marble that were very well decorated. The decoration on the marble is so intricate that the box has value in and of itself. But the value of this alabaster oil is not in the box. It's not in the, the, the box that man makes. It is in the oil that's inside the box. And the only way in which the oil can be manifest is if the box, pretty though it may be, belabored though the, art may, the, the, the artistry may be and the, and the craftsmanship can be, uh, precious though the, um, creativity, the human creativity that went into it could be, as far as the precious stuff is concerned, it can only happen when the, the box is broken. It's only broken. With Judas... He found that the thief in him could not carry the good values that he had. It is in this that you see the point of departure between Christianity and another gospel. Christianity is, has it to do with the fact that there is someone that's there. It's not even in the, the things that you do, but the fact that someone is there that is bigger than all the values, bigger than all the ethical, ethical um, decisions that we make. With Judas, he was nothing but those thoughts and equations and equivalences. I believe that that is something that Paul is speaking, that is, that is the thing that Paul is speaking about when he talks about a, another gospel. Another gospel, the gospel that is the, 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 the creation of human uh, thought, or human creativity, of human doing. The gospel is essentially nothing to do with what I do. It is what Christ has done for me. It is what Christ has done for me, and because of that, I become the alabaster box that is broken for Him. And how it flows out is not my control, under my control. And this is something that perhaps we need to understand here in America because we like to control the flow. We like to measure the flow of a little bit of spike knot here, okay, a little bit here, that, a little bit there. Don't break the thing. And look at the, how beautiful the box is. Look at how creative, how gifted we are. Look at how, how much artistry there is in that. Look at the gifts that are there in this box. With, with God, it's much more radical. This is break it. 
Break it so much so that none of it is, is drawn attention to, so that the more precious stuff comes in. May I suggest to you that the, 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 the point of departure between the other gospel, okay, the other distortion of a gospel, perversion of a gospel, and the gospel has to do with the fact that God has a starting point for us. The starting point is that we are crucified with Christ. Hallelujah. We are crucified with Christ. And what comes forth when that happens, when we consider our life no longer our own, no longer our own, no longer the calculated way in which we dole out to God our time, whether it's for devotions or for prayer or for service or for ministry or for, uh, for, for worship or, the, or, or to our children or that. No longer is it something that we can control the flow of, but it becomes a, in some ways a hot mess. A hot mess. And, uh, and, and, and as a result of that, what Paul is saying is this, that um, uh, in, the, in, in the gospel that causes Christ to be revealed in me, in him, this Christ that's revealed in, in him comes only because of the fact that the treasure is in an earthen vessel. And so you have the repeat of that, that, um, that metaphor with, uh, with Mary here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. And that is that the treasure cannot come out unless there is a breaking. And I want to draw your attention to this as we come to this, to this part. Because the law, confidence in the law, is a confidence that if we do it all right, if we take the recommendations and the, and the requirements that society gives to us so that we will have ethical justification, we will somehow be justified. If you turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, Paul speaks about this in verse um, 16. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ. What he's basically saying is this. You people who are wanting to impose an extra law upon Christians, upon the Galatian church, you will not be justified by this. In fact, he says in verse 19, For I, through the law, died to the law. I, through the law, died to the law. What he's saying is this, the very law that you are saying that people have to, 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 have to, to, to live by, apart from Christ, is going to crucify you because you cannot live by that. Just as Jesus could not live by that. No matter how good his intentions were with respect to the, the, the ethics of the day, he could not live by that. And what Paul is saying is, is that very law that you want to hold on to will crucify you. The very, very law that has been imposed upon you by outside will crucify you. You are to be separated from that. And that's why he says, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. So what Paul is saying is this, no, I don't live according to these, these stipulations or these ethical stipulations. I live unto God. And unto God is where, is, is where my orientation is. 
And what, what happens is this, that the Galatians were imposing upon them a structure, a, a, a complex uh, a construct of ethical and religious laws and, and rules and regulations that became its own thing. Became its own thing. It doesn't mean that there, were not, there was no similarity, but it was an asymptotic relationship. It was an asymptote. And then, uh, sorry, and it, it was it was in a, a symptotic relationship with the actual life of Christ. What Paul is saying is this: there's righteousness only in Christ. When Christ comes on the inside, He lives His righteous life with us as we break before Him. You cannot impose upon yourself another righteousness that is a construct. And what happens is this: what we, what we have is that Christians get confused with the ethics of the world. Because the ethics of the world has become a construct. It has been constructed without God. It has been constructed out of the, of, of, the, the, the of human sense of what's ethical and what is good. There are parts of it that are, because they are made in the image of God, that are, that are good. They are good there. But they don't come from the spring of God. And as a result of that, of that what you have is that you, may have, you have a situation like, like Judas had. He, he, he would raise up one value to become the unum necessarium, the one value that is not from God, but it is, but it's, a, it's an agreed upon value. And he says, this one should be given to the poor, but he can't support it. He can't support it. Only Christ can support that. Only Christ can say, yes. And, and he allows us to do that. And what happens is this, as Christians, we can sometimes end up uh, absorbing the things of the world. And I mentioned the word freedom. As well, I know that in America, the, the word freedom is such a big thing, such a big thing. The, the people in Malaysia don't really know, know about that kind of freedom. That freedom is sort of an un, un, uh, unbounded freedom. The freedom to be yourself and do whatever you want. And, and these, these, what you call unum necessariums, this, this one singular value that comes out of the ground of that construct um, becomes the absolutized thing in our lives. What was happening for the Hebrews is that, with, with, the, with the Galatians is that the Hebrew, the Judaizers were actually coming in and putting up these constructs for them. Yes, believe in Jesus, but you also got to do this. You got to get circumcised. You got to fo- follow the law. You got to follow these, these, uh, these, uh, these calendar events and all that. You've got to do all this or else you're not quite what you're supposed to, put, to do. And when you have that, what you have is a kind of a gospel that is actually dissolved. And what Paul is saying is this, no, this law will kill you. It will crucify you. And, and what it has to do is to draw you back to Christ. Because only in Christ can you fulfill the works and the justice of God. Only in Christ will you be able to minister to the poor in such a way that you're not ministering yourself, your crippled self, but you're ministering the life of God in you. Amen? Now, this is something that I feel was, was, uh, was, 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 was amply described when the Atlantic Monthly uh, had ran an article uh, regarding uh, a certain period of time um, during the 19th century, the, uh, the middle, middle and end of the 19th century, regarding Great Britain and the, a movement called the Plymouth Brethren Movement. It was during the time. It was during that time that the Plymouth Brethren movement um, coincided with the 
the social gospel movement. Okay, the social gospel was a was a movement in liberal theology that basically said that uh, salvation in Christ and the authority of Scripture basically was was only relatively important. In fact, it wasn't relatively true. The social gospel was a was a theologically liberal um, um, uh, um, position that actually there were no miracles. As far as we are concerned, we don't even know whether a person by the name of Jesus really lived. But what's important is this. We must go by the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Okay? Brotherhood of, brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. This is something uh, um, Adolf von Harnack, a German scholar, came in, came in with. And so, but it, a very interesting thing was that um, in, a, in this article from the Atlantic Monthly, the writer said, the flowering of the Brethren movement, an evangelical, he said, sectarian movement, in which churches, small churches in Britain, began to do great works of, uh, of justice and mercy, flowered so much that when it all comes down to the numbers, it outstripped the social gospel movement. Yeah. Um, the Christian century, some of you may have heard of it, um, the social gospel movement, by, by, by leaps and bounds. And the, and the writer describes how Christians in these little churches all over the pla- all, all over place, all over in, in Britain and uh, in the colonies, did works that were saving people from their sins and shutting down uh, uh, brothels and uh, nightclubs and causing people to be rescued from child slavery. He talked about the fact that it was in this strange accompaniment of spiritual relief and spiritual life and service to the poor that justice flowered during that period of time between the mid-1900s and the earliest early 20th century, actually all the way up to the 50s, it was quite an interesting uh, article. It was in this place where I'm reminded of the fact that some of you know Sam Harris. Sam Harris is one of the, um, the, the um, famous the dark, the, the three horsemen of the apocalypse, the, the, the three famous uh, new atheists who are totally antagonistic to Christianity. I uh, wrote a, a, a blog on Richard Dawkins' um, uh, blogosphere and said, we have a problem. The problem is this, that in the days of this, um, of, this of, of ISIS and of great uh, confusion in the Middle East, the Christian doctors that are unregulated are doing a far greater job than Doctors Without Borders and, and our own doctors because they are brave. They dare to do these things. It is an embarrassment. And he writes to Richard Dawkins and says, we have to do something about it. We are, we are having a crisis. Because there's something more than just external values that was erupting. And the same can be said of William Wilberforce, who was a very strongly spiritual person. A person who was very, very weak, always sick, always sick. A scrawny little man. But through him, much, much was done. Well, what am I saying? That we should forget about all, all, the, all the works of justice and focus on just worshipping Jesus? No, we're saying that as we come before God, 
the gospel gives us plenty of infinite resources to come and do the world the good of God. But the key is, like an alabaster box that has to be broken, God calls us to come to this place in which we allow Him to break the outer man. There came a time in my life, several times, but I think about one, one time when I felt the Lord was challenging me to do something that I was completely scared to do. And I remember that time when I was faced with a crisis in my own life and my own ministry where I felt the Lord say to me, I need you to correct certain aspects of the church that are going to cause great upheaval. For all these years, my, my, my mode in ministry has always been diplomacy. Always diplomacy. And with di- diplomacy, I was able to get much done. But there came a time in which the Lord spoke to me and He said, I need you to make a stand. Because if you don't, the church will become not only unhealthy, but it will become unclean. If you know me, this is one of the hardest things. I am a person given to anxiety. In fact, I have anxiety about being anxious. I get anxious about the fact that there may be a point where I will be anxious. I am the most cowardly and sniveling, um, timid person that you can ever imagine. But I remember that God spoke to me and He said, take courage and your heart will be strengthened. Psalm 31. Take courage and your heart will be strengthened. My problem was always this. I did not how to know how to overcome fear. I did not know how to overcome the emotion of fear. And to be told by God, take courage and He will strengthen you, did not seem to help me at all because I couldn't get past fear. Fear of what would happen to the church, fear of what would happen to my family, fear of what happened in terms of the, the very obvious consequences that would take place. And then I realized that when God was saying, take courage, He meant something that I had not even thought about at first. And what He was saying was this, I want you to take courage, that means obey what I tell you to do. Even if it means that your life will be spilt out, and everything will go to pot. And I remember when I saw that, I realized there was a way out of the impasse of the very real fear that I had, the real anxiety I had, to do this particular action that would mean taking a stand for something. And I realized that when God was saying, take courage, He was, not, he was saying, don't shrink back. At some point, you have to make a decision whether you're going to follow me and obey me even though you're afraid. But it's only when you take courage, that means you take heart, you, you, you obey me, that the courage, the, 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 the bravery or the strength will flow. And I remember praying and praying and praying. I prayed for days and days and days and days and the f- fear never left. I felt the same as always before. And every time I prayed, I was praying that there would be no crisis, that nothing bad will happen. 
and I, and and my 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 prayer was a loop. I prayed that nothing bad would happen, but I would never pray with a readiness to make a decision to obey God. And then suddenly I realized, and God was saying, "Take courage, means I want you to not shrink back. Don't shrink back. Take your stand." And I remember that morning when I when I did that. I had a word that God was saying, you're going to pass through the Jordan. The whole church will pass through the Jordan and you will make it to the other side. I still felt fearful, but I decided, okay, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. I won't tell you what I did, but I did what God told me to do and things became a mess, but in such a way that God redeemed the situation and healed, healed many parts of the church. But I tell you something, the moment I made the decision, I'm going to do it, strength came. It flooded into me and I found myself not afraid. I started looking for the fear. I started looking for the anxiety that I normally have. And I found that I could not find it. I was no longer praying that the crisis would be averted, but I was finding myself praying with strength and with boldness. For many of us, the only way in which we are going to see the works of God in our life is when we take courage. And that courage may be like the breaking of the alabaster box because you're completely in God's hands. And it's in this place that miracles will take place. Indeed, many miracles took place. And I, I am a different person now from ever before. Because courage is not something that you have to just feel. It has nothing to do with feelings. Courage is an obedience, not shrinking back, and allowing God to have your alabaster box. Let us pray. I wonder whether there are some of us who are here who are saying, I do want this life. I want to have a life that springs out of God's presence in my life. I've lived perhaps by my many good principles, but somehow I've not seemed to experience the reality of God. But today I see that God just requires me to be given over to Him, to be committed to Him, to let go of my freedom, to be identified with Him. I believe that there are some of us, actually I believe there are many of us, who are on the verge of spiritual breakthrough, but there's a fear factor that makes you shrink back from doing what you know God wants you to do. You may be giving to someone. It may or may not be speaking something. It may be speaking to someone who doesn't know him. 
Perhaps you've been a person who's never seen God really move in a very significant way that can be only attributed to, to God. And perhaps you've uh, dismissed the nudge of the Holy Spirit to speak out of turn, perhaps. To walk through a certain amount of awkwardness. For some of you, it may be that you would displease someone in your family or in your life or close friend. For some, it may be that God just wants you to just say, I declare I am a Christian. For some of you, God may be saying, I want you to put your time or your resources in my hands. For some of you, God is saying, I want you to be extravagant in your time with me. And people will say, what a waste. What a waste. But that's the start of an authentic Christian life. We welcome you, Lord. Yes, Come, Lord. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Mm. Lord, we thank you that righteousness and peace, they kiss, they meet, that you bring together what looks like is not together. And we thank you, Jesus, that you poured it all out, that you went ahead of us, you showed us, Lord God, that you did it, and you did it while we were in you, too. When you died, you poured it all out. You poured out all our toxins. You poured out all our diseases. You poured all our genetics out. You poured out mm. every bit, God. And, Lord, you brought us into your line. You brought us into your heritage. So I just have a sense this morning that there's somebody that feels a bit depressed because they don't know how how can I bring these two things together? I've never experienced it. I just have this picture that just open the door. Just open the door to your heart. Just visualize Amen. it. Amen. And when you do, you're going to find that Jesus will prepare a place for you. You're letting him in, but you're letting him in to build a home for you that perhaps you don't have right now. But he wants to build your home. He wants to build your future. He wants to build your relationships as he builds you. Amen. So let him in. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We're going to be going into a time of soaking. And that is a perfect time to become to begin to receive, to pour out your heart before him and receive from him an exchange, a divine exchange. We thank you, Lord, for being with us. We thank you you're not done with us. But we thank you that you are here. You paid the price. You've set the table. Everything's been paid for already. And now we want to come in and to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen.